maybe an unforgivable thing. I made a confession here at Embassy Church that I had never seen the Lord of the Rings. I was pretty much booed and laughed at when I confessed that I had not seen any of them. And so since then, I have, in fact, watched one of the first of the three films. I learned something very important when I watched this first movie. Spoilers are bad for watching movies, but they are great for our real lives. When somebody tells you the end of a movie, it ruins the suspense, doesn't it? You may not know how it's going to end up unfolding, but if you know the end, it's like, well, I know what's going to happen here. For example, when I was watching The Lord of the Rings, I remember Frodo getting chased by all these big, scary bad guys. I remember thinking, man, this guy at one point was completely surrounded by these huge, awful, terrifying creatures. My heart was beating faster. I'm sitting at the edge of my seat, and I'm thinking, there's no way out. Then, for a brief second, I thought, why am I getting all worked up? There's three movies, and I'm no Lord of the Rings fanatic, but I'm pretty certain that Frodo's in both of those. <laughs> Meaning, yeah, he's going to make it out just and fine. And suddenly, my heart rate drops. I slouch back in my seat, and I know everything's going to be fine with Frodo. But you see, that pretty much spoiled the intensity of that moment because if I didn't know, then I would have just continued sitting on the edge of my seat. Spoilers are bad for movies. But spoilers are great for real life. What we're going to see today in God's Word in Psalm 129 is that no matter how hard or difficult your life will get, knowing the end of the story will make all the difference. You could say one way to describe the Bible is that it is one big spoiler alert. So if you want to live your life up and down, dramatic suspense, and not know the ending, if you would like to be anxious about your future, then now would be your time to skip today's message and head out the door. We're going to see from Psalm 129 and the rest of the Bible three things about this great story. So our outline for this morning's text is actually going to take a different passage of Scripture, some that you might be familiar with. John 16.33. Here's how I want to break down the psalm for us. In the world, you will have many troubles. That's point one. Point two, but take heart. Point three, because Jesus has overcome the world. So there you go. I hope all of us will have John 16:33 memorized by the time we leave here today. In the world, there will be many troubles, but take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. Let's consider that as we read Psalm 129 found in your Bibles on page 518. I'm going to read through the whole psalm and then we're going to consider these points one at a time. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. 
This is a very interesting section of Scripture, probably not on any of your coffee cups or t-shirts at home. Not a favorite psalm, if you want to put it that way. It's rather depressing. There's great affliction. There's even verses 5 through 8, a prayer, a asking of God that he will shame and hurt or put to away with the evildoers. So what are we going to do with this? Let's first take our first point and consider that in the world you will have many troubles. We see that quite clearly in verse 1. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. What is this phrase saying here in verse 1? Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth. First, you need to understand that this word greatly could be interpreted a couple different ways. In its essence, it means a great abundance, meaning both in its intensity of affliction, but then also in its number. So quantity and quality of affliction is great. Secondly, you should notice in this first verse and phrase that it's from my youth, meaning the youth of the nation of Israel. So when Judaism was started, right away they experienced great affliction. And if your memories are struggling this morning to figure out, really? We just read it from Exodus chapter 1. Right when the nation starts getting gathered together and forming itself as a nation, what does the nation of Egypt say? Oh, this is not good news for us. If they keep getting more numerous and prosperous, they could be a threat to us. So King Pharaoh enslaves them unjustly, not deservingly. It's awful. It's terrible. Is, is it Exodus 1.14? They made their lives bitter. They had harsh labor. The Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Sounds like the phrase we see in verse 3. Look down at verse 3. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Friends, this is a gruesome, disgusting picture. Imagine what the psalmist is saying here is that we're getting so beat down by, say for example, the king Pharaoh, that it's like a plowman taking the plow and ripping up the earth all the way down the field. So he's being, so is that being done to my back, whipped and lashed so that my back is being split open like the ground is from the plowman. What an awful, terrible picture of the unjust suffering that God's people have experienced again and again. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. We need to learn from this, friends, that all of God's people, not just those in Egypt, have experienced and will know in the future great suffering. As Jesus said in John 16, in the world you will have troubles, many of them. If you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, the Apostle Paul says you will be persecuted. And in fact, Jesus said, if they called me terrible things like Satan, Beelzebul, how much more terrible will they call you things? You are not greater than the master, so you as the student will receive the same treatment as your teacher. You call yourself a Christian this morning? You should know that there will be many troubles for specifically being a Christian. Are you surprised, friends, when you look around and read the news or see the world's opposition toward Christianity? Well, hear it again this morning. You should not be. This is normal in the way that Israel and Judaism was birthed. It's normal in the way Christianity was born. An important part of our story as Christians is that we were born in suffering and that this suffering God has used to make us tender to those who suffer around the world. 
In fact, it is suffering itself that should shape not only our message, but our mission and how we engage that mission in the world. I came across an interesting excerpt from Bernard Lewis. He is one of the world experts on Islam. And in his book, Comparing Christianity and Islam, he says, Consider the history of God's people. Consider the way that Christians were started compared to the way Islam was started. Now, I have no idea if this Princeton professor is himself a Christian, but I think his observations are quite accurate. He says, One of Christianity's biggest differences with Islam is that for the first seven centuries of Islam, they experienced unmitigated success and triumph. They would go from strength to greater strength, from battle to battle, and for seven straight centuries, they went on without facing one single defeat. Imagine that sort of success and how it shapes and molds who you are as a people, and compare that to the four straight centuries of brutal awful persecution that Christians faced from the day of Jesus to his life, his death, and then the followers that then called his name. Friends, if you are confused about what it means to be a Christian or what Christianity is all about, you need to realize that for four straight centuries before Christianity ever became legal, there was no abuse of power. There was no grabbing and taking. There was a lot of suffering for those who said, I believe in Jesus. This is the way Christianity began, and it compares so differently from so many other world religions. Lewis, the Princeton professor, concludes this, these two dramatically different experiences casts a mold for the way these two world religions would then understand themselves. He says, in the heyday of Islam, your option was to convert or die. But compare that with the heyday of Christians. When Christianity was spreading all around the world in the first four centuries, they would go around the world and not kill people they met. Rather, they were willing to be killed by the people they met. And so by being killed, God's word would spread. Our experience in suffering makes us tender to the world around us and those who suffer. One missionary said there are no closed countries to the gospel as long as all of us who know the gospel, are willing to die as we share it. Christianity was birthed and will grow through great affliction, just like Israel was. Christianity began at its very earliest stages with intense persecution. Consider this phrase in verse 1 of Psalm 129, verse 1, Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth. Can you think of anyone that might have prayed and sung this psalm himself? How about Jesus Christ? Greatly was he afflicted from his youth. From the time he was born, he was facing intense persecution. If you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know in Matthew chapter 1, when the New Testament begins, the story of Jesus, the story of Christianity, it begins with Jesus being persecuted and attempts made on his life to kill him as a young man. Greatly was even Jesus persecuted and attempts to afflict him in his youth. Many people have actually questioned Matthew chapter 1's rendering of that story because Matthew in chapter 1, if you read through it later, you'll notice he actually quotes the Old Testament. 
and says that in the same way that God called Israel out of Egypt, so Jesus was called out of Egypt in suffering. Because of Jesus' persecution from Herod, he had to flee to Egypt. And so the author sees a connection between Jesus and Israel. And a lot of people, especially scholars, say, man, this is one of the reasons why you can't trust the Bible. Look at the way Matthew reads Hosea very inappropriately. Friends, if you're struggling with understanding how the Old and New Testament work together like this, and why I would quickly jump to Jesus from reading Psalm 129, verse 1, like, why are we talking about Jesus? I want to introduce a friend of mine. I don't know him personally, but G.K. Beale is a wonderful friend for you to get to know. He's a New Testament scholar, teacher. He has done excellent work on this understanding of how the Old and New Testament fit together. So let me share this illustration that G.K. Beale gives in his book, The Temple and the Church's Mission. He says, I want all of us to imagine a father in the year 1900. Now imagine this father promises his very young son that when he gets married and, and grows up, that he will get for his wedding gift a horse and a buggy. But during the early years of expectation, the son is reflecting on the particular size of the buggy its contours, its style, its beautiful leather, the size and breed of the horse that would draw this buggy. But what if the father knew from early experimentation that elsewhere in the world there is the invention of an automobile quickly on the horizon? The son, being too young to understand, was never explained that on his wedding day he would not be getting a buggy, but he would be getting an automobile. In other words, the promise that was given to the son was that he would get a mode of transportation, a horse and buggy, and so the son longed for that horse and buggy. But years later, he got married, and the father gave him a brand new automobile, which was now invented, mass-produced, and a wonderful mode of transportation. So G.K. Beale asks, do you believe the son would be disappointed that he got a car instead of a horse and buggy. Is this not even a literal fulfillment of the promise given to the immature young son who has no concept or knowledge that there would be a vehicle of such nature? In fact, the essence of the father's words remained the same. He said, I promise I will give you a convenient mode of transportation when you get married. The thing that's changed is the form of the transportation that's promised, and therefore the progress of technology has escalated. It has progressed the fulfillment of this pledge that could have never been conceived. But nevertheless, in light of the later development of technology, the promise is viewed as a literal, faithful carrying out much better than he could have ever imagined. Friends, do you understand this illustration here? This is exactly the way you should read the Old Testament in general, and more particularly, a lot of its promises. When we understand the Old Testament in this way, that God is speaking in what the New Testament calls a great mystery in the Old, it is made clear as that mystery is unfolded in the person of Jesus Christ. So when we read words like, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, we can clearly connect those to Jesus, the greater Son of God, the greater Israel, who from the time he was born was afflicted and persecuted greatly. This is how we see the Old and New Testament relating to one another in its greater fulfillment from one side to the other. 
This is why it's completely appropriate for Matthew in chapter 1 to pick up Hosea saying, look, in the same way that God called out Israel from the affliction of Egypt, so Jesus was being called out and his life being preserved in Egypt. The themes are the same. And so this is one quick, helpful way I would explain how we understand our Bibles better. Herod wanted to kill Jesus, but God's purpose was going to prevail. Therefore, we should take great heart, friends. That brings us to our second point. Take heart. In this world, there will be many troubles, but take heart. Why? Let's look at our psalm one more time. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Yes, there is indeed great persecution and affliction for God's people. But what does Israel need to learn how to sing? What do they need to learn how to say? Great affliction. But Israel learned to say this. They have not prevailed in their attempts to thwart the plans of God. They have not prevailed in their attempts to hurt and derail the promises of God. They have not prevailed against me. God's people are not to celebrate just triumph and achievement. This is one of the most important paradigm shifts for you if you're understanding really what it means to be a Christian this morning and what it means to understand the Bible. We, when we gather together, are not merely celebrating and singing songs and praising achievement and triumph from us. Rather, God's people sing and celebrate what we have survived and been rescued from. This is what Psalm 129 is really all about. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Israel, say this, yes, there's great affliction, but you were preserved. You were saved. There's a fundamental difference, friend. If you're here this morning and you're trying to learn what it means to be a Christian or what it means to worship God appropriately, it's not about you looking at what great achievements you have done in your life but rather the great achievement that God has done in the person of Jesus to rescue and save you. God will preserve us. Doesn't that remind you of Psalm 121 we had just went through recently? He will not let your foot be moved. Behold, he who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. He is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from evil. He will keep your life. He will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Take heart. God will preserve his people, no matter how great the affliction. One beautiful image I was able to come across this week was from Theodore Beza. He's old and he's dead. He's really, really old, actually, like 500 years old. Theodore Beza was one of the early reformers that was trying to help reform the Catholic Church and say, Catholic Church, you've kind of strayed with some of your teachings. And one of the things that he said in his writings, he says, Sire. And at that moment, I was like, man, we need to bring back some old school language. Start saying, Sire. <laughs> anyway, no fun for me. Sire. It is in truth that the church of God has had to endure many blows and not strike back. But may you also remember that we are an anvil that has worn out many hammers. 
I think that's an amazing thought for you this morning. The church of Jesus Christ and the people of God, from Judaism to the progression to Christianity, is an anvil. And they will not prevail no matter how many times they try and strike us with their hammers. We wear out many, many hammers. What an image. Be encouraged. Take heart, my friend. Where is where's the source? Where is the foundation for us taking heart this morning? It's verse 4. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. If you're wondering, by the way, what's this meaning of the cutting of the cords of the wicked? Most commentators seem to agree that it's probably the cords of verse 3, the cords that would have attached the plow to the back of the horse as they're ripping up the backs of people. Those cords of the plowman are going to be cut, and they will not rip up the earth, metaphorically speaking, literally the backs of people with their suffering and their injustice anymore. Because the Lord is righteous. The righteousness of the Lord is that He will do what is right and just. He will punish evil, and He will not leave guilty people unpunished. He will cut the cords of the wicked. He will end evil and suffering. He will put an end to all cruel oppression. He will vindicate all those who are oppressed. So you, friends, should take heart this morning that we have a righteous God who is in control of all of the universe. And so when there is human trafficking and child abuse and battered women by abusive husband and terrorist attacks and whatever else you could think of this morning that would be awful evil in this world, take heart. The Lord is righteous. In the moments of greatest suffering, you need a great theology and a big God. Remarkably, you can take heart, my friend, even when you look not just at the world, but your own evil, sinful heart. You can take heart that the Lord is righteous. Now, if you think about that for a second, and I encourage you to think about that for a second, how do we take heart knowing that God is a punisher of evil and will remove all evil, and if the Bible says that we're evil, that puts us in quite a predicament. That's not take heart, that's take cover. I need spared from God's anger and wrath toward me because if I'm part of the evil problem of humanity, I do evil things. And How do I take heart? The answer comes in Romans chapter 3, one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, There is no one on the earth that is righteous. Only God is righteous. We are not righteous. No one has done good. We speak evil from our mouths. We have no fear of God in us. And then he says the most beautiful words, like I said, in almost all of the Bible. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrated his righteousness by sending Jesus Christ as the propitiation, as the wrath remover of our sin and place that on Jesus so that all who would trust in him would be spared. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness is what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. Which then begs the question, what does that mean? God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. You see, one of the problems we have when we read the Bible is that we read it kind of with our interests in mind first. Like, okay, I need to figure out how to solve my problems. One of the strange things about the Bible is that it's actually solving a much bigger problem than your and my problems. It does solve our problems in wonderful ways. But one of its primary objectives is to solve the problem that God has. 
how can God continue to let this evil that's in the world keep going on? If he is so righteous, the Lord is righteous, you say so emphatically, Pastor Phil. Oh, yeah? Well, I've seen a lot of unrighteousness, and those people just seem to go off scot-free. What do we do with that? That's why Romans 3 is so beautiful. In order to demonstrate that God is still righteous, he has formerly passed over and been patient with the evil and sin in the world so that he can allow that sin to crush his own son, Jesus. And that by doing so, every single sin ever happening on the earth would be punished either on the cross of Christ or when Christ returns. There will be no one that gets off scot-free. Because of the gospel, we can look at this verse and say, the Lord is righteous. The gospel is the only answer to demonstrate the righteousness of God in this great problem of evil. So friends, take heart this morning, not just in the evil in the world, but take heart about the evil in your own heart. Embrace Jesus and his death as the punishment that you deserved, and therefore you can agree that there would be now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's plan for ending evil was to take evil on himself. He doesn't just punish people and look down from heaven and say, you evil people, I'm going to get you. No, he first came down from heaven, and he got himself. In other words, in this world there are many troubles, but take heart, because Jesus Christ has overcome the world. That's our last point I want us to consider, and I want us to look at that from verses 5 through 8. Some strange verses indeed. Verses 5 through 8 of Psalm 129, May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We shall bless you in the name of the Lord. This is one of those strange moments where if you're reading your Bible, you're like, wait a second. So is it okay for us when we get cut off today as we're leaving And we're driving around to start laying down curses on people? Because, I mean, that's what's going on here. This is an appropriate way to pray. Now, maybe if you're a a cat lover, maybe it's okay to pray down curses on those people. And I'm just, just joking. What do we do with this, though? In all seriousness, look at these verses carefully. They're saying, may all who hate Zion and are enemies of God, first, may they be put to shame and turned backwards, like Embarrass them. Second, let them be like the grass that's on the housetop which withers before it grows up and the reaper can't put it in his hand or the sheaves in his arms. This second request is, I want them to be like grass that grows on the top of a roof. I don't know if you've ever done roofing or been up on the top of roofs, but their roofs were made of clay and so often seeds might get blown up. And then because there's no soil underneath, there's no place for the grass to really live and grow. So there might be a seed that sprouts up for a second, but there's no roots and it's not deep. And so it withers very quickly under the sun. That's the image here. I would like them to come and go very quickly. That's quite a prayer. And then this last one, verse 8. Nor do those who pass by say the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is a common greeting. Actually, if you read through the book of Ruth, you will know that there's this exchange that happens between different people in the Jewish tradition. 
And then they would say, hey, may the Lord bless you. And then they would return back and bless you also. There's just a little saying. And they're saying, don't say that to them. Like, we don't want blessing on them. So we're not going to say bless you in return. You see these three things, they're a bit troubling when you start asking yourself, what is going on here? First, I would like to say, this is not a personal prayer of vindication for one individual that's getting cut off in the road and be like, ah, curse you. God, bring down curses. In fact, when we see in the gospel stories of Jesus, when the disciples start praying down curses on people, he's like, man, you have missed it. You have missed it. We don't want to call fire down on them. And so we need to understand that there is something different going on here. Actually, just look at verse 5. May all who hate Zion. This is those who have an opposition against the kingdom of God. Think bigger, think national, and understand that there is a national prayer of preserving the kingdom of God to preserve God's promises. One way that helped me think about this was that when I was considering the kingdom of God and that we pray in the Lord's Prayer, let your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven that there's a positive way to look at that prayer and there's a negative way to look at it. In other words, for the kingdom of God to advance and for evil to be done away with, sometimes that's going to be in the great victories of the gospel as people convert and turn their evil to good and cling to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and their hearts get changed. But sometimes people are going to reject that message and God's punishment will come upon them eventually and fully. The advancement of the kingdom at times will be that evil people will be done away with. They will be punished, and all the more so as the kingdom advances more clearly. So it's almost like you could look at these prayers as like the other side of, hey, let your kingdom advance, and you're thinking very favorably, but what about when Jesus prays or says to us, pray for your enemies? Have you ever considered that maybe one way you should pray is that, God, if they do not turn from their sin, turn from their evil, then let justice be done. That's kind of the spirit here, and we know that from the scriptures, we don't want to repay evil for evil. We're not looking to get people. We know that God's kingdom purposes are advancing, and we want them to advance, and we want evil to end. And that's the theme of this prayer in verses 5 through 8. I hope that's helpful. There's much more that could be said. It's a very complex issue in terms of what these are called imprecatory prayers of the Psalms, of praying down curses and judgment. But I hope you start to see that the, the bottom line is this, God preserves Israel, and by doing so, he saves the world. In other words, as these words in verses 5 through 8 are prayed and then answered, as God's victory through preserving Israel is secured, that then brings the victory to all the world and the end of the story. First, or John 3.16 is one of the most famous verses, and I thought maybe this would be a helpful way to explain it. For God so loved the world that he preserved Israel, keeping his promises, giving them a horse and buggy, keeping his promise by sending an automobile, Jesus Christ, his only son. Way better than a horse and buggy. If anyone would ever believe in Jesus and trust in him alone, they will not perish like the grass that comes and goes on the rooftop but rather they will have eternal life. You see that by preserving Israel, that brought about Jesus. And by bringing about Jesus was the start of the end of the story. That through great affliction in his birth, 
and eventually his death on a cross, and then his final conquering of death and sin and evil all together at once when he resurrected from the dead. Jesus Christ is the reason we have great hope this morning. Do you know that hope? When I was watching The Lord of the Rings, I was able to slouch back and say, I bet Frodo's going to be in the next ones. I still haven't watched them, but I know that the story ends like this. I did a little cheating, spoilers. They're not good for movie watching, but they're great for the end of the world when you think about our lives. At the end of The Return of the King, Jared Tolkien describes how evil has been completely vanquished and everything is set right. After the ring has been destroyed on Mount Doom, Sam wakes up from his sleep. He's surprised to be alive and see Gandalf. And he says, Is everything sad going to come untrue? What has happened with the world? Isn't it an interesting question that Sam asks? It's different than asking, is everything good going to come true? Rather, he's asking, are sad things going to come untrue? Friends, there's something wrong with the world. It's a place filled with great heartache and sadness and affliction. It is cursed by sin. There's groaning that awaits for a wonderful redemption. And we know the end of the story. There will be a final consummation where all sad things will come untrue. The curse will be rolled back. The world will be changed. And so if you're currently experiencing great affliction today, in your life right now, or tomorrow, because it will come in this world, there will be many troubles. Take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks this morning for the wonderful end of the story that you will make all sad things in this world, all evil, come untrue. There will be a day where there will be no more tears, no more evil in our hearts, no more evil in the world. Thank you for that great promise through the person of Jesus and the great work he did on the cross of Christ. Thank you that you have remained your righteousness there is no doubt in our minds that you are the Lord who is righteous and you will punish evil. But thank you, God, that you don't just punish evil, including us, evil, and the evil that we have done. Thank you that you have also sent Jesus to be the punishment for our sins. And we can have great hope this morning, even for all the evil things we have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we stand and sing, we're going to conclude our service this morning with a baptism. So I'm going to ask Xavier to